What I have learned at Simple Modern is to focus a lot on the conversations and the relationships. There are people doing a lot of things with consumer products in the real world, and they feel the need for help. And it, it's obvious that technology uh, it has some application there and, and trying to, to meet on those and, and communicate and find, find the places that are a good fit. In 2016, I co-founded a drinkware company called Simple Modern. I was obsessed with the question, what would happen if we built a for-profit company focused on generosity? This podcast is a behind-the-scenes look at how we scaled from a bootstrapped startup to nine figures in annual revenue. We'll share with you the strategies we used, things learned along the way, and how we built a different type of company. This is Scaling for Good. Hey everyone, welcome back to Scaling for Good. I'm Mike Beckham, your host, and I'm the co-founder and CEO of Simple Modern. When we started Simple Modern, we had zero customers, and today we serve tens of millions of customers all over the world. As you can imagine, it takes a lot of infrastructure and logistics and systems talking to each other in order to serve that many people that far flung. How do we do it? A huge part of the answer is technology. We live in a generation where technology has made it possible for us to hit scale faster and larger than ever before in human history. But also the complexity of doing that continues to rise. As an organization, as we've scaled, we've used technology, even though we're not a technology or tech company, to help enable our growth. And today I'm going to be joined by Caleb Phillips, who's our Vice President of Technology. Caleb, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Mike. Why did you see yes to this opportunity with a, a company with a bunch of people you'd never known in the middle of Oklahoma? You know, to be completely honest, it was it was pretty low uh, commitment for me at the time. It was easy. Yeah. You know, I mean, we I flew out I think in May of 2018 and met you guys, and obviously seemed like a great group of guys. And and with Boston having the history with you and Jeff, you know, in college, it's like it wasn't cold turkey. You know, yeah. like it wasn't just walking up to a group of strangers. You know, he you know, and he definitely vouched for you know your character. Um, and I think we were just trying to be open and, and be creative. Yeah. And we didn't know what was next. You know, it was, it was always the like, oh, we can go back into the kind of tech world and start applying at all the big places. And, you know, but we were trying to stay open to, to something new, which this was definitely something. This was definitely new. something yeah. new. Um, so you were walking into a situation where we're a very decidedly non-technical, non-technology company in the sense that, um, the product we sell is about as physical world as it gets, you know, and a lot of the problems and, um, you know, that we have to deal with every single day have to move with moving things around in, in the physical world. So, uh, one of the things that I noticed, uh, about you is that you, from the very beginning, you wanted to really understand the business. And sometimes this isn't, this isn't, a characteristic of developers. It's more like, hey, what do you want me the system to do? But there's not necessarily an emphasis on understanding all of the why behind that. Why why do you think it's important to understand the business side of the tools that you're building technically? Yeah, I, I think for me, there's a real motivational thing. What what I really want to do is feel like I have solved a problem for somebody. You know, like I've really enabled you to do something you weren't able to do or something that was really painful. I've made that, you know, just a kind of a routine thing for you. And through my life as a developer, you know, over the, it's been like 25 years now, I spent a lot of time in the early days trying to get good at all the development things. I'm learning all the languages. I'm doing all the, reading all the project management books. But to get through a project and feel like you've done a really good job and realize it didn't quite fit. Mm. Like, I didn't quite understand what you were asking me, and it's not really going to do, you know, you're going to have to make compromises to use this thing that I poured six months into. It was really disappointing. And so I think that made a big impression on me to, to say, like, I really want to understand what we're trying to accomplish, because it's hard for people to communicate with developers, first of all. Sometimes developers are really. Hard. I've never heard that. Yeah. So that, that's <laughs> something you've been told. Sometimes uh, developers are hard people to communicate with, and then just... There's a couple other factors, you know, a lot of, most people don't understand what are the actual complicated parts of the technology. And 
and most people aren't always used to like thinking really systematically about what they do. Mm -hmm. You know, they're really good at doing what they do. They get through it and it's like, yes, I got it done. But to come and to ask them, let me tell me systematically what you do and why this works and what you do in this exception sometimes can be a challenge for folks. So it's kind of a passion for me to figure out how to do that communication bit better. So to draw an analogy, um, my wife and I am Myers-Briggs. We are opposites. I'm an ENTP. She's an ISFJ and like strong differences. And uh, when I realized this, I thought, well, that seems rare. Seems like that wouldn't be a good thing mm. necessarily. And uh, I, I did some research and, and it turns out that affinity, I've been told, is like a horseshoe. So if you imagine a spectrum <clears throat> of a personality type, like say extroversion and introversion, and then you took that and you kind of bent it like a horseshoe, that you tend to have the most affinity for people that are close to you on that horseshoe. So that can be people that are really similar in your temperament, or that can be people that are really different mm -hmm. in your temperament. But the reason why you can have a lot of affinity for people that are really different than your temperament is because you don't have the conflict that can happen when you're kind of similar because they just don't understand. Like, you know, yeah. you're so different that it doesn't create conflict. The parallel I would draw is I think when it comes to technology, it is so off of people's radar how it works that they just are like, it's magic. Technology is basically like magic. You know, it's like Harry Potter. Like they they go and they, you know, do their magic spells and and then these amazing things pop out that make our phones be able to do all the cool mm -hmm. things they can do. And that's really awesome. And I'm glad we have magic. And uh, and that's my understanding level, you know? And yeah. so it's like, they, they like the idea of technology. They're favorable towards it, but there's not even like the most basic understanding of how technology processes work. The reason why I think that can be especially difficult in a business context, and I want to get your thoughts on this, are the less that people understand how the technology works, the easier it becomes to try and turn it into some kind of like magical genie, you know? Like, uh, you know, it'd be really awesome if it, it could read my thoughts and lunch would just be on my desk, you know, or whatever. Mm -hmm. And they, they come up with ideas where you're like, okay, well, let's, let's dig into that. Right. Yeah. And, uh, let me explain to you why that's, that's not really how this thing works. Anyway, so sometimes we can ask technology to do things that don't really make sense because we don't really understand how it works. How do you help the people that you work with understand what technology can do, can't do, its limitations, and help them be able to help inform what we should be spending our time on, what we should be building? Yeah, I, I think the, the metaphor I go to most often is with, with automation, basically what we're doing is you know, pouring concrete around a process. Mm. You know, it's like, I have a process that I want to run fast and predictably and repeatably and all that, right? And so I'm gonna automate it. Um, but that means that we have to kind of lay out that process, you know, kind of lay out the form that we wanna yeah, pour the machine, concrete into. You're, you can't, you're not creating something that thinks for itself. Correct. Right. Right. You are creating basically a set of instructions right. of do this. And then you're also creating a set of instructions around, hey, when an exception happens, when something, you know, other than the normal happens, then do this. And you have to kind of map out every possible scenario. Right. 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 And that's one of those things like we say it a lot. Um, computers are dumb, but because I think that's hard for people they feel intimidated by the computers, but like you are such an incredible reasoner. You can every day think through 75 different scenarios and you're not even conscious that you're doing it, but you present a new scenario to a computer program. Yeah. It just doesn't know what to do with it. You know, now you've got the chat GPTs and all those things going on that are kind of even maybe clouding it up more for people. But just, uh, I think that's one thing kind of the, reflection on how much thinking we do throughout the day. And how many exceptions we run into. Yeah. I think that's one thing that you've really helped me to see is how often things that I feel like are routine, they're not as routine as I think they are. That right. there's actually a lot more variance in how I do them every day. So uh, even if I feel like, oh, I do this task today every day and it's about the same, and this would be great if this was automated, 
Then when you start to dig in, you're like, well, actually, you do that task a total of 138 different ways, depending on circumstances. If you really map out everything, and so like you do a good job of this with me, we can automate that. We can automate that, but you should know, hey, actually, if there's 139th way or 140th way, if there's exceptions you haven't seen yet, it's not going to do very well. And also, we're going to have to do all the hard work of, even if this is a really basic thing, we're going to have to do all the hard work of working through every single different way you handle this mundane process before we can automate it. And that's not natural, especially when you're in kind of the magic thinking. It's like, this is pretty simple. Let's just automate it. Right. That's disappointing, right? Yeah, (laughs) exactly. I I want something. and I think if you reflect on most of the software you use, it's, it's like that. It's like a lot of the cases, it's really great. And there's yeah. some, a few pieces of software, you know, commercial software that, man, this really does what I want. But most of the time we end up working around it. You know, it's like, well, I use it for a few things and other yeah. things I, I do on my own because it doesn't work that great. And yeah, I, I feel like I'm for sure still learning how to, to balance that and looking for creative ways to, to communicate. It's like, maybe you don't have to describe all 140 scenarios to me. Maybe you can say, these are the eight that I care about and all the rest, I want you to just send me an email or, you know, and, and, but to also think through, does that really save you any time? Yeah. You know, because I think that's the thing that people find out a lot. It's like, well, it's like 80, 20, but it's like that 20. That's actually actually where all the pain is. Yeah. Right. Like I can mindlessly do the 80% and I can do it in three seconds and I don't care if that's automated it's, this is really draining when I have to deal with these exceptions. And you're like, yeah, well, it's going to be really draining to write automation around that. Also, the reason it's draining is because you have to think about it and you have to really parse through like, Hey, what do I want to do here? Yeah. And that's the kind of classic thing in all the project management books. It's like people come to a developer and ask them to do a thing. And then they, why are you asking so many questions? You know? And it's like, it's, um, yeah. And, and so it's a balance because developers can be overly rigid but but learning how to do the find the right balance. Yeah. I mean, I think the more that we demystify what development is, the better that we're able to take advantage of it. Uh, one word that you've used a couple of times that I think is a very key word is exceptions. And what I have learned over the years through business is that when things go as planned, it's pretty easy. You know, Mm -hmm. there's not a lot of questions. It's pretty easy to automate. It's smooth sailing. The problem is they almost never go 100% as planned. And if you look at some of the, let's just say, best uh, organizations in the world, like I think if we looked at Amazon and how they do fulfillment, we would say it's a modern marvel. They use so much technology. They've got these huge fulfillment centers. I mean, I was even looking at a statistic that in the last year, they've reduced the average amount of distance that a package has to travel by 15%. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's like, man, phenomenal, amazing. And yet, if you get into an exception flow on Amazon, it can be terrible. So an example of this, it's a few years ago, but it, it illustrates the point. I moved from uh, the first house Heather and I were in to a new house. And when we moved, uh, we were in the process of moving. I bought a new TV because the, the new house had an extra bonus room and I wanted to put a TV in it. What I didn't realize when I bought that TV is that I hadn't entered my new address into Amazon. So mm-hmm. it still had my old address. And we, we get moved into the new house. I'm like, man, that TV hasn't shown up. And then I realize, oh, you know, I probably had the wrong address. I get into Amazon. I see that they tried to ship that TV to my old house. And obviously I don't live there anymore. And so the post office took it back and I fell into one heck of an exception wormhole that took literally like weeks and dozens of phone calls to get a TV that was like being stored three miles away, delivered to my house. The reason being like, that's an edge case. That's an exception. And the systems weren't built around doing that well. They were built around somebody puts in the address and that's where you deliver it. And they're going to still live at that address, but exceptions happen all the time. And that's what makes business challenging and what's, what makes automating and using technology so difficult. And I think that's instructive too. Like Amazon, probably the biggest developer of technology in the history of the the world. The world. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know how many engineers they have, thousands and thousands, dozens of thousands or whatever. 
in that scenario, they fall back to people, right? Yeah. You have to chat with that. You know, they've gotten better over the past few years, but you have to chat with somebody and kind of try to convince them that it was a thing and it's okay. You can send it to money. You know, that's been my experience, you know, that it, it's really hard to build a system that can just do it all. Right. Yeah. And then, We've run into this actually in manufacturing because manufacturing is another place where you use automation and somebody, one of the people we were working with that designs machines, um, he, he just said something along the lines of, you know, human, human beings are the best machine that's ever been built. And, and what he was meaning by that is that when it comes to making things, the versatility of the human body and the human mind makes mm -hmm. it the best like building machine ever. We're not as fast as machines, you know, we're not as strong as machines. Or consistent. Yeah, or as consistent. But if you're like, hey, I'm gonna give you one of any 10,000 problems, like you, there, there are so many, the, the problem set that humans can solve because we have bodies, you know, we have we, we have arms and legs and brains and, and uh, you know, freedom, range of movement with our, you know, ability to make decisions and problem solve. And I thought it was a really good observation because it's the exact same thing we're talking about, that when you're trying to solve a problem, humans are actually really great for that. Okay. There is a point with problems where this problem doesn't need to really be solved. This thing just needs to be done consistently right. or faster or at scale. And those seem to be the places where technology really makes a difference, yeah. right? I think that, I mean, that's easy. That's a place it's like, well, we have a thing we want to pour concrete over it and make sure it happens this way a million times a day, every day, 365 days a year. And it's like, well, that's an easy, yeah. easy uh, place for that. I was just, um, I was talking to Lee, um, was over manufacturing and logistics and talking about warehousing and, and the technology for that. And, you know, and when I was telling him, I'm not worried about us not being able to write the technology. My main worry is the technology not getting in the way. Cause I, I think that's, yeah. that's the kind of like the next level with technology stuff, because we've all used systems where it's like, why are we doing it like this? Well, in order to get the ERP to do it the way we want, we have to yeah. do it in this order. And that's and, the worst case scenario right. where you're actually having to add work to, to use the system, you right. know, like to use a, an office. I'm a huge fan of the office, um, to use an analogy. There's a point where they set a website live and, uh, they're mm -hmm. kind of, you know, he's the Ryan is telling everybody to cook the books by entering sales they've made in person on the phone into the website also, mm -hmm. you know, to, but we do things like this all the time where we work around the technology. The technology right. that's supposed to be making my life easier ends up making my life harder and adding work. Right. Obviously you don't want to do that. Right. So, okay, how do you do that, Caleb? Like in, in our company, that's really your role. You're vice president of technology. You're trying to say, even though this isn't a tech company, there's a lot of ways where technology can improve the way we do things it can like you said we can do things faster we can do things more consistently we can have better measurement and insight into what we're doing so how do you do that with simple modern before i answer that i will also say there is a class of things where uh, the multiplication of all the options gets so big it's really hard for a person okay. to hold it in their head you know yeah. it's like you're running three or four warehouses with some combination of six thousand different products going to 10 or 15 different retailers, you know, mm -hmm. there starts to be, get to be a multiplication that, and that's another case where it's hard for people to put that in their head, yeah. you know, and say like, how are all the different ways that inventory could end up over here? And so that's, you know, the kind of things that we're also looking at right now. What I have learned at Simple Modern is to focus a lot on the conversations and the relationships, because I, I think we do have that natural amount of, there are people doing a lot of things with consumer products in the real world, and they feel the need for help, and it, it's obvious that technology uh, it has some application there, and and trying to to meet on those and, and communicate and find find the places that are a good fit. Let me let me interrupt you here because you're making a really interesting point. Not many developers, when you said, "Hey, how do you use technology?" are going to use the word relationships, right? You just mm -hmm. said that relationships are part of it. So I'm really curious to understand why developing relationships with your coworkers has anything to do with building better technology solutions. Yeah. I, I think to the point I made earlier about the, just the primacy of like how important it is to communicate clearly, mm -hmm. uh, to kind of not, 
because it, it's kind of like the butterfly effect thing. Developers are making, we've talked about this a lot, hundreds of decisions a day. Like I'm, I'm going to do this. I wonder if I should do that. You know, they're making so many decisions. So the better information, the more and the more quality information they have, the less likely they're going to get off track, you know, and start veering yeah. off to the side, which we've all seen on projects. Um, so communication being so important, I think is the really the basis for the the, the relational focus. And my approach is like, I can be very direct and analytical. I just, let's just talk about all the things. Right. And having a, a place that's safe relationally here for people to provide feedback that, hey, that really is not all that helpful. You know? Yeah. It's like, I want to come into a room and I just want to talk about all the problems. Let's talk about all the problems and what we're going to do. And realizing for a lot of people that doesn't land, it's not a helpful way to approach problems. Yeah. And so needing to spend time together talking so that I can learn how people receive information and they can learn to trust me and I can learn how they communicate, Yeah. I think is, it's Simple Modern has been a place where I've been able to learn that, which I, I don't, I've never had the opportunity to really grow in yeah. that. Because uh, usually it's just a conflict, right? Usually it's just, yeah. Hey, I want this. I need more information. You're not giving it to me. Well, I need my deadline is this, and you know, and it's just like, sure, fine, I'm going to do whatever. But here it's just been that refinement process of like, I still don't feel like I'm um, understand what you need. Let's just continue to get to know one another because these are these are also bigger questions. It's not just a website. It's like, where are we going in terms of an overall system that's going to help us with our supply chain? And right, um, so we have an ongoing, like, this is, you know, a couple of years, probably, it's going to take us to kind of talk through this and figure out where we're going with it. So. Yeah, to use an analogy, it, it seems like one of the things that I've seen you do, and the way that having real relationships where you're constantly communicating with principals in the company is sometimes it's easy to be like, uh, I need this. I, I've got like a laundry list. I need, you know, I need, I need you to, I, I need some cold medicine and I need a thermometer and I need, you know, uh, what a smalka seltzer and, and, um, I need a warm blanket. And it's like, no, you know, as you, you ask questions, it's like, no, you need to go to the doctor. That's what you need to do. Like there's actually mm -hmm. a root cause here of like, yeah. you're sick and you know, like they, there's something you think you need these things, but right. you, you know, there's probably a larger symptomatic thing here. Uh, causing all these symptoms are being caused by a bigger root issue. And my experience is that it's very easy for me to think, okay, here are the things I think I need. And if you ask those additional questions, it, it helps to illustrate and surface that, okay, there's something deeper that's leading to all of these problems. Right. And if we could use technology to help address that underlying kind of more fundamental cause, that that's the win. And right. I, I think that's been one of the exciting parts of, uh, of our relationship and working together is learning how to go after the real wins, you know, yeah. not just, okay, we, we made this one person's life easier by automating this one process, but like we found an underlying principle that we can kind of really address with technology that, that matters in a lot of people's lives in the organization and makes it, you know, really moves the, the ball organizationally as a whole. Right. And I mean, and that to me is the most exciting thing. It's like when you get there and you discover a principle and the person you're working with realizes they're going to get a whole bunch more out of it. Yeah. It's like, that's an exciting, that's fun. It's like, we're on the team, we're playing together and we have just discovered how things work. And, and if something really is a principle, it's going to hold up and you know, you're probably not going to find it like causing you a problem down the line later because it kind of works in accordance with your business. So what's an example of a project where you felt that at the end? You felt like, hey, there's been a lot of conversation, a lot of question asking, and it surfaced something that wasn't readily apparent at the first, but we were able to see the real need and build something that really uh, transformed how people were able to do their jobs. We're still in the middle of one right now with our warehouse management system and kind of still going through that process. But there was that point where um, it had been going on a long time and weren't kind of getting down to the, the heart of the matter, it felt like. And, um, you know, somebody on my team was, was got an opportunity to, to talk to some of the people on the floor and understand how they were doing things and really was able to propose 
uh, we had bought a system we were looking at implementing and proposed, I think we can write something that will actually do more and get us further down the road in a shorter time frame than than uh, kind of going through an implementation with a, a third party system. Yeah, and um, that just it feels good to be able to to do that and and to um, to propose to the people that you're working with. Like, I think I understand. I I really understand not just what you're asking me to do, but what it is that you're trying to do on a bigger picture. Yeah. And, and one of the things that I think comes with that, and this is worth saying, it's been a theme uh, I've, I've been talking about, which is with technology, you really start to realize it's not about the right solution. It's not about the best solution. It's about understanding the trade-offs of whatever solution you pick. And this is the reason why very smart people who are well-informed and in the business can sometimes look at a problem and come to different answers of what they think the solution is because they have a different qualitative take on the trade-offs that are involved. This one will take six more months to build, but we'll have half as many errors, right? Right. But it'll also cost twice as much, but it'll require less people to work. And And then somebody else says, well, I don't think that's as important as getting something out the door, even if more people have to, you know, work on it. If we can keep costs down and we can get it out the door, that's the priority. Well, now you're having a strategy discussion and a qualitative discussion. You can't get away from those. No. Those are always going to be there. And I, I think that that's been another thing that I've really learned in the process of going through things with you is that these are all trade-off conversations. Right. A really good dev leader is helping to surface those trade-offs. If you want, we can automate this here's going to be the cost and here are some of the things you're giving up because I'm pouring concrete all over everything. Right. You know, I noticed that we changed our process three months ago. Do you really want me to pour concrete all over everything right now? And that sometimes those are the most effective things you do is just say, Hey, I just want you to, from my perspective, to see the trade-offs. Right. Yeah. And that's one of the things we're trying to get better at is, is to kind of take the pulse when projects come up, because that, that is a real thing of like, I, it doesn't feel to me like this is so solidified that we want to put a lot of effort and, and really formalize how we're doing it. Now, if it's getting our orders for Amazon, okay, we're going to take millions of those a year. It's yeah. not going to change. Yes, we should automate that. It should be awesome. Right. We should, nobody should have to think about it. But something new that we just started a couple months ago, Let's think about it. Is there anything, any way that we could get in, uh, remove some kind of barrier without uh, pouring too much concrete? You know? Yeah. And, and that's what we've been talking about with the warehouse management system. It's like, I, there are all kinds of things I can imagine us doing, but we're so early in our own mm-hmm. kind of warehousing journey. Yeah, I don't want to get in the way of us two months from now saying, no, we want to turn it inside out and do it a completely different way. So I want to ask you about some of the challenges. There are a lot of challenges that can come with software development. And, you know, I think maybe you were the one that told me that the the estimates are that most software development projects fail or something like that, or it was some kind of, you know, various studies. Yeah. I'm I'm sure that we could, you know, we could throw a bunch of numbers out, but a surprising number of endeavors that involve trying to use technology don't succeed in the final analysis. So for everything that technology can do, there's a lot of the time where, for one reason or another, it, it isn't effective. And I want to talk through some of the causes there. Um, one of the things that's that's a reality uh, that you deal with, uh, and you know, I think our team is pretty exceptional. It has some of these elements, but definitely in the larger, you know, kind of technical community, is that developers tend to be less skilled interpersonally, and Also, there's this, developers tend to be more creative and more introverted. It seems to be my, I mean, obviously I'm painting with a a broad brush, but what challenges does that lead to? Yeah, when when managing developers, um, I don't have those challenges as much here because I work with people that I've worked with for so long and, and we kind of share those values. But when I have done that before, of getting them to value, because it is when there's so much complication and it's so unclear a lot of times organizationally, like what are the criteria for success that a lot of times people will focus on, I'm the expert on this framework, or I'm, I'm going to make this thing do all, you know, do these 18 new things and kind of get off track. 
Um, and when so, you say get off track, maybe I just want to make sure yeah. I'm understanding. It seems like one of the ways developers can get off track is I want to use the newest hot language because that's the new shiny object and it'd be fun. Or I'd love to take on a project where I learn this, you know, and maybe that's not necessarily organizationally the highest priority. Yeah. I mean, it's, I would go out on a limb and say it's very rarely, you know, a priority for the organization um, to, it's almost anything. I have my certain preferences, but almost any technology thing will serve most of the purposes of any kind of business. Obviously you get into something like Amazon scale or whatever, you know, you're dealing with dealing with um, some other constraints, but you know, small businesses, most any technology would work. So changing right. technologies is to me, usually a, a flag of somebody is either bored or not getting enough direction, you know, and, that's a pretty broad stroke too, but but it's a good point that like for for all of us, we have less helpful tendencies that can happen when we get bored, when we don't feel challenged, when you know when, when we're not on mission, when we're not kind of working in unison with others. And this was one that surprised me about developers, partially because I didn't make the connection for a long time that the developer personality type, it's very attractive to creatives. Mm -hmm. And so the idea of building things and creating things and having a vision in your head and bringing that into reality and also has this draw to the new and the unique and the bespoke and that generally, because what we're talking about is actually taking something that's really known and making it predictable. And that's usually when technology is really good. Those two things can rub against each other pretty easily. Yeah. But it's also, I mean, I get really excited about the kind of things that will change the organization, right. you know, that will enable the organization to do something new. And I think the other challenge with that is that you can't do that on your own, mm. right? If we need to look at how we're allocating inventory to different warehouses. It's like, well, program's going to help, but I'm going to need, you know, five or six other people to be on board and to get a vision for the, you know. And so I think that's another reason that developers can kind of get distracted on those things. And, and all of us can do that. It's like, if I have the choice between, you know, conflict and really having to sell my idea and, well, I could go do something else that you know I can do on my own and get done and yeah. really and and it's accepted as a you know kind of a form of progress. Well, and I, I think this is uh, to go back to my magic analogy. This is one of the places where it rears its head again. Mm -hmm. It's not like anybody knows what you're doing, right? You know, you could literally be over there just you know pretending. I saw this really funny TikTok where this guy was like you know, uh, the, he was like, this is peak man was the, the caption. And he went and took the battery out of the air conditioner. And then he like turned off the water on the toilet bowl and he unplugged the cable. And then he, he videoed and his wife was like, this isn't working. This isn't working. This isn't working. And he's like, Oh, I'm, I'm right on it. He goes in the bathroom with a drill and he's just drilling in the air. He's like, yeah, I'm really working on it here. Hey, can somebody bring me, you know, food and a drink. And they bring him a food and the drink. He closes the door and then he does the drill in the air a few more times. And, you know, after about 20 minutes, he fixes the toilet. He did this with each, yeah. with each step. But to some extent, it's like nobody knows when, when a developer is like, oh, yeah, I'm going to go and I'm going to get in and I'm going to refactor the code. You know, if you're a somebody on the business side, you have no idea what right. that means. So they that can be true, not just in terms of whether or not they're working on your project, but also like how they're approaching your project. Non-technical people don't have the ability to evaluate that. And this is no. maybe, this is a really big question for you as a leader. When you are leading somebody that is approaching a project in a way that you think is not best, how do you refocus them? Because you're in the unique seat where like you will review the code and you do understand what they're doing. And so what are some of the techniques you've used to help direct people back towards being on task and maybe not kind of falling victim to some of these impulses that we're talking about. I think my first thing would be to, to paint the vision, yeah. you know, the, here's a really, really big kind of audacious goal that we're going for, you know, in a couple of years, I would like to be through all of these things. And, and if my sense is you're getting off 
down some rabbit hole, you know, and I would definitely, you've worked with me on this. There are some places where it's like somebody wants to try out something and it's like, we can box it in. And it's like, you want to try that out for two weeks? And that helps you develop your intuition about what's a good idea, what's not a good idea. Today's episode is brought to you by Encore Fulfillment. Years ago, when we were getting our first water bottles in, we needed to find a partner to help us to fulfill them to customers. We knew nothing about the fulfillment process. We were all new to running a D2C website where we handled the fulfillment, and we were looking for somebody to help us do it with professionalism and give customers a great experience. That's when we met Encore Fulfillment. Based out of Oklahoma City, Encore has been a key partner as we have grown the brand from selling just a few units a week to now hundreds of thousands of units weekly. They've handled fulfillment needs, not just for our website, but can also do mass PO fulfillment and other important logistical things that we need as we grow. I've really enjoyed working with the leadership of Encore and the way that they have built their business around us as a true partner. I know that they would be a great solution for your growing e-commerce business as well. That's why it's easy to advocate for Encore Fulfillment, today's sponsor. I think about managing people, especially creatives. If you don't give them some room to just experiment and to try things and to be creative, they will definitely feel stifled over time. But I think the analogy you gave, I mean, it's the same way when we think about like our creative department here. There's a lot of things that have to get done. There's a cadence, there's products that have to be launched. But if we're not building in any capacity for them to be able to try new things and just experiment, it's very easy for that to feel rote and routine for them, which in my experience really saps a creative of motivation. So you're kind of saying sometimes you'll create kind of compartmentalized opportunities for people to, to kind of flex their, their muscles a little bit, or their creative muscles. Yes, I would definitely be more open to it, to that versus somebody coming to me and saying, you know what, I think we need it as a new language. And yeah, I, our accounting I, system should be rewritten in this new computer yeah, language I read about. We need about. a new database. and. And and those things do happen, but it's it's going to be have it's going to have to be put in in a context of a lot of other things going on. Um, now, I also really want my developers. They spend a lot of time maintaining the systems and and making sure that you know one of the trade offs that we do to try to get things out fast is we don't write a solution that does handles every case. We're like, well, that case is going to happen once every couple of weeks. We'll take care of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so rather than delay the thing another month trying to figure out how to handle every case, we'll get it out there. We'll see how it is. But hopefully they all know once this has become too much and you feel like it's impacting your other work, you are free to fix that. Right. Yeah. Uh, and I think that that's at least for the kind of developers that I like to work with. I think that's really motivating this idea that I can have the power. I have, I have a, a place of judgment that I'm responsible for. Yeah. That you're empowering them to make decisions. Right. And it's not, it's not because like I want a nifty new thing, but it's like, well, my job is to enable this organization to, you know, meet its goals. And so if this production support issue is getting in the way of that, then part of my job is, is to bring that up to Caleb and say, Hey, you know, I really think I should take a couple days or a week, whatever to fix this. And, and I'm very rarely going to say, no, you need to stay on this thing. Uh, so you're, you're talking about empowering people to, you know, to make judgment decisions. How do you help people that you lead develop good judgment when it comes to technology decisions? A lot of my focus will be on how much, um, you know, something you've written is distracting you. Because when you go forward, I think, because there can be all kinds of discussions about testing and correctness and you know, what's, what's the right amount of testing to do and all yeah. this. And, and we move pretty fast. Um, and if you move fast and it doesn't hurt you is a good choice. If you move fast and it continues to cost you, then, you know, you need to evaluate. Yeah. Facebook has famously been right. move fast and break things. And in some situations that's helpful. Like it, that the speed of getting things out and getting solutions out is more important than if you, you know, you break a few eggs along the way, making the omelet. Um, but there are other things where things breaking are catastrophically bad. Right. Right. And, and one of, one of my things that 
I don't want to do is the default mode for an engineering organization is just to hire people more and more and more yeah. because mythical man month, right. all of that stuff. You, it, and it, it happened to me early on and I, I kind of got driven to, to not follow that pattern because you get in, you start a project, you're a hero, you're adding features. And then as you add more and more things, everything just kind of slows down mm-hmm. and all these, well, I can add this, it's going to break this other thing. And, and so you just kind of grind to a halt and then so they, well, let's add some more people and you just, and you see how people get to thousands of developers. So kind of one of my passions is, is teaching people to um, have that kind of judgment to figure out if we're going to scale without, you know, yeah, adding 10 times the number if of If we have a constraint around people, how do we solve these problems? You have to be able to leave a problem. You know, you don't have to get it perfect but you have to be able to get it to a place where you can leave and go on to another problem. Yeah. And, and that's, that to me is where the judgment around how much testing and how much uh, production support, logging and alerting and all those kind of things is the right amount. As people are thinking about advancing in their careers, they're thinking about, well, I'd like to get a promotion. You know, that usually comes when I manage people and that right. comes with more pay. And there's all this incentive to just grow the headcount. I mean, we're looking at a really fascinating example of this with, uh, you know, X or Twitter right now, where obviously it was this organization that had gone into total technical dysfunction, that it was taking forever for new features to come out. I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to minimize the scale that they're operating at, but at the same time they had, I don't even know how many, you know, thousands of engineers they had and really basic features wouldn't come out, but it's some of what you're saying. The more people you get, the more you get layers, you get bureaucracy, you've got to get 15 sign-offs and everything just kind of grinds to a halt. Elon Musk came in and went absolutely ditch to ditch, like got rid of 90 something percent of the staff and we'll see, you know, Uh, they're definitely shipping features, which is interesting. We'll see if the thing implodes upon itself, but at least so far it doesn't look like uh, it will. And so, you know, what does that tell you if, 95%, 90% 95%, 90% of the engineers go away and the site's still working and they're getting more features to market. Right. I think it makes your point for you, which is just like, it. it's crazy how low the correlation is towards how many people are quote unquote working on something right. technology wise and how much you move the ball. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg recently meta went through a couple of rounds of layoffs. And one of the things he said in a letter to employees is that he dramatically underestimated all of the additional complexity that you add when you add headcount and how it makes so much of the running of the business, just the managing of people, you know, that's it. And that the the focus starts to become, I mean, a lot of it just starts to be around the bureaucracy and, and the managing all of the the people and not actually getting uh, product to market. So I want to talk about the other side of this. We've talked about some of the challenges when you're, you're working with other technical people, but you also will run into challenges working with non-technical people. Some of the time it's from uh, uh, unreasonable expectations, uh, different perspectives, uh, lack of understanding of how the technology works. Um, what do you do when a non-technical leader in the business asks you to do something that you really just think is a bad idea or shows a fundamental misunderstanding of what the technology can do, how it should be applied? Yeah, I think... We have a few different things. I mean, one of the things that's been really great uh, as having you to kind of bounce ideas off of, I mean, that's kind of my first um, probably go-to in a lot of circumstances of, you know, I'm seeing this and it seems clear to me, it seems clear to this other person. Um, You know, how are you seeing this? Or do you you think there's a kind of a blind spot that I'm approaching this with? Um, I've been involving on this some, because there are kind of things that, that take a long time for us to get um, understanding or to come to a place of consensus on and to feel like, oh yeah, this is really what we should do. Right. Um, and some things never get to consensus. Some things never do. And 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 uh, there, we've had a few projects this year where I felt like, I'm not sure I'm convinced of the value on this, but it really seems to be valuable to other people. Mm-hmm. And is there a way that we can design a version of this that won't be too risky and that won't be too costly and we can get it out 
we can, um, you know, see if it helps, you know, if we need to do more in that area. And then I can also use it as a form of communication to say, I see that you're asking me for something yeah. that I don't exactly know how to give and I'm, and I'm going to take a swing at it. Um, I think I, in the past, probably stood too much on the ground of like, I have to understand this. If I don't understand, I'm not building it. Yeah. yeah. Because it seemed reasonable to me. It's like, well, I'm the guy building it, so I should probably understand. Yeah. But, um, but to move more toward, well, let me figure out a version that I can understand. Maybe it's not fully satisfying you know, to the person asking for it. But um, it feels like it's been good this year and that it has built um, more pathways to communication. Yeah. As those, as those projects are out and I follow up with people, you know, and say, you know, do you think we should do more on this? And, you know, a lot of times it's like, no, actually I want to wait and see now that it's out there, you know, yeah. um, I think we need to do some more thinking internally. And that has been an eye opener for me. Like I need to be more willing to spend more time to kind of carve things up. And, and sometimes I've demanded people to explain things to me and maybe, I just need to do the figuring out, you know, yeah. it's like, let me get in, let me run it by you. Is this any version of what you're asking for? And, and um, some of that is me kind of pulling back out of project work. I'm, I'm trying to, to define my role as not just completing a particular project, but also being kind of the steward and the person who's watching what's going on. And yeah, and you're, you're kind of in the player coach transition where, yeah. There are definitely times where you're in there, you're writing the code, you know, you're making the technical decision, but you're also leading a team. And that's the thing that really scales. And that's where the highest leverage is. And so there's, you're, you're experiencing the tension, it seems like right. of, um, how do I balance those two things, you know? Right. And we've talked about this over the years and, and the place where our team is right now, I'm feeling really good and, and also feeling more empowered to, just dedicate time to conversations and to thinking and and to to kind of researching what other things are going on that might be six or eight months down the line that I'm going to have to um, not be reactive to. You yeah. know, like oh, I heard about this thing happening, uh, but to to take the opportunity to follow up with other leaders and say, yeah, I, I know we've got a thing coming, you know, in the second quarter of next year. What are your thoughts about that? How do we need to be planning? You know, and so. For sure. Um, so that there's a, a more um, flow, a better flow through yeah. the system of projects rather than, oh, we got to the point where we had to do it to it's sell it. right up on us. Yeah. yeah, I think that's something that in general, we've used the analogy of uh, there, there was a lot of the company's history where it felt like you're a goalkeeper in hockey, you know, that like mm. all you have, it's basically reacting to a puck that's right in front of your face. There's no ability to kind of think whatever three months, three, three years, whatever out. Instead, it's just like, I've got to, you know, I've got to block whatever's right. two feet away. And that's preventing me from being able to, to think longer term. And that can be exciting and compelling because it's like, it's coming at my face. It's, it's clear what I need to do. From an adrenaline perspective, yeah. It's fun. And maybe this is part of why people, uh, I mean, like I, I'm guilty of this too. The earliest days of the company, certainly it's a very vivid way that I remember those. And it's probably because I had like six times the normal amount of adrenaline in my system at almost any given point in time. So like, there's a reason why I remember those as very exciting days. Like I was, you know, like basically the equivalent of being hopped up on Ritalin or something. Yeah. Um, but it's not sustainable, right? You can't right. long-term build in that place. That'll yeah. wear you out. It's an interesting thing because we, you know, we had uh, some production support stuff that I actually got involved with. And it is nice when you spend all your time, uh, I know you do the, trying to think in the future and trying to figure out what's coming up and what should we do next. When there's a problem that you have to address today, it's like, all oh, that goes away. Mm -hmm. And this is what we're doing. And so it can it can be relieving in that sense of like, I just shut off all that other stuff, but it isn't. Yeah. You're not going to scale yeah. that way. It's not going to go away. And and really where it limits you is it limits the ability to build meaningful projects that are compound in nature right. that you have to build towards. Um, you know, I want to point out a couple of things about what you said before we transition to talking about uh, a major project you did. And, and that is, one thing you said is there are times where you will not be able to fully understand why somebody feels so strongly that they need a technical solution. 
Like it, and it's not even necessarily an intellectual barrier. Sometimes it's just a, Hey, I see all the same facts you do. I just see it differently. But I liked what you said, and it goes back to this concept of high-performing teams are teams built on high trust. Mm -hmm. And that sometimes I just have to, you know, you can tell me this is what I need. And even if I'm like, I don't really get it. I don't think you need that. That if you're telling me you need this because you're my teammate, I'm going to trust you. And I'm going to help you get what you feel like you need. That there there is a time and a place to push back and say, are you sure you really need that? And then there's another time for me to say, Caleb, I trust you. You say you need this. I'm going to help get this to you. And this trust idea, it's amazing how pervasive it is. Once you see it, once you realize that it it's kind of undergirds all successful organizational activities, you start to see, you know, all these connections. And this is yet another example that you're going to have to do some technical projects over the course of your time here where it doesn't make sense to you and where it requires you to exercise a certain amount of trust. And that trust is somewhat linked at least to credibility. And this was a conversation we had, I think a couple months ago, um, that was, I think, fairly insightful for all of us, which was, how do you build credibility with others? And, you know, in our own mind's eye, we've got credibility. Like, I I think of myself as a credible person, and I have my kind of, all the things I've done in my head, and uh, the reason why other people should take me seriously and should view me as credible but uh, not everybody views me that way. I mean, it mileage varies wildly, in fact, depending on how much you've worked with me, how much time you spent around me, um, and, and other things, you know, what, what qualities you value in a leader. And what's really ineffective for me is when I just assume that I can walk into any room and be viewed as highly credible. Mm-hmm. Like there's certain rooms I can, you know, I've worked with these people for a number of years. They've been with me as we've grown a company. I have credibility in their eyes. And as a result, I have high trust. But if I walk into a room of random business leaders and just assume I'm going to get the same credibility in their eyes that I get when I'm at Simple Modern or, you know, uh, with people that have, have known me for a really long period of time, I'm not being realistic. And this was one of the unlocks we had is that a lot of times when that trust isn't there, it's because there's a credibility miss that's happening. Mm-hmm. How have you seen that uh, over the last year of times when there wasn't enough credibility built to build the trust that was needed? I think, yeah, our, our, my team and in particular people, um, really everybody on my team is probably more of the mindset of like, hey, we're going to get together the objective facts. Right. Right. Let's get together a spreadsheet. Of, here's all the logic. Here's the A, costs, B, C, D, E, F. Here's the potential upside. Yep. Let's look at it. What what are reasons we wouldn't do this? Um, And I think um, we had a project last year where um, it was was very complicated um, to figure out um, how to get it started. Yeah. There there, were a lot of different opinions. There there were a lot of different opinions. There were a lot of actual just roadblocks, right? Physical roadblocks at the warehouse and... It was around personalization, yeah, right? Technical roadblocks, yeah. you know, personnel roadblocks. There were all kinds of lasers, questions. websites, yeah. all these, you know, lasers for engraving cups. Um, so there were a lot of things going on, and we were looking for a way to kind of like slice through it and find like here's a way that would allow us to get started without solving every single problem because right. solving all those problems to us just seemed like we're never going to get it done. Yeah, we'll never and, get started. Right. Yeah. Um, and so. We approached it very much from that, like, okay, here's here's a plan, here's here's the dollars, here's what we think we can do, and let's just go around and kind of socialize that, and it'll be clear, mm-hmm. right? And um, it wasn't clear to to you know to everybody. Yeah, you guys got to an answer, and you're like, we're smart, and we've put a lot of hours into thinking through this, and so, but. Other people, you run a remote team within right. the company, and, and we'll talk about that here in a second, but other people weren't present. Other business leaders weren't present for all of this thought and this kind of logical process that you went through. You more kind of showed up with, guys, here's the answer. We've thought through it, and here is the answer. And, and how do you feel like that was received initially? Yeah, and, and I will preface it with our, our assumption, too, is if, if any of this reasoning is wrong, you'll just tell me. 
Right. And we'll fix it. Right. That's how we go. Like that's, we get in a room together and we just like, no, you're wrong. You know, we talk to each other like that. And so we expect, oh, everybody's gonna be comfortable. Yeah. Getting in on, getting on the phone with me and telling me like, oh, this assumption's wrong. This assumption's wrong. And, um, I think it just, it didn't register with a lot of the leaders why we were even asking those questions. I think that was it to, in our mind, it was, I, I see an ask with a lot of details, but I'm trying to kind of waver back to that root cause. Like, what's the thing that we're really trying to get done? What are we trying to solve? And, and what are the what are the kind of principles we can't violate? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, in order to get this launched because it's difficult. We're gonna have to make compromises. So, you know, what are the what are the things we're gonna try to get done? Uh, and I think it was just confusing to a lot of people. And even for me. Sometimes I can want to use my credibility and just say, hey, guys, I've thought through this. Trust me. And that is usually profoundly unhelpful. There are times when it's like, hey, there's not there's not the time and space for me to unpack it for you. But I've thought through this and this is what we're going to do. But in general, when you just say to people, hey, I've done all the heavy lifting, I've thought all the way through it, you know, trust me on this. Um, it's not great. And so you guys ran into a little bit of like people being like, don't they trust me? Like I'm, I'm over this. Why would they be asking this question? Don't they trust me? Mm-hmm. Which is not a great reaction. Right. Uh, and then, you know, it can also happen the other way. You like, you gather a bunch of information, you do a lot of thought and say, Hey, we've put a hundred hours of thought into this. This is the answer. Trust us. We've, we've really thought it through. I promise. We had a situation with domestic manufacturing. Where we were trying to make a decision about going into an additional product line. And Lee and I had spent, I don't know, I I would say at least a couple hundred hours just discussing this, thinking about it from every different angle. Um, And we really felt strongly. This was the way forward. It was clear. And more or less, I made the mistake of presenting that to the other senior leaders. Hey, guys, this is what we're going to do. Lee and I have talked a lot about it. You know, it'll cost a couple million dollars, but we feel really confident. Let's go. And that didn't go great for me. Um, And People had a lot of questions and initially my reaction was to get defensive. Like, listen, like, I think I've proven that I'm smart enough that when I say I've really thought through something and, and really what it was, was immaturity of of me as a leader to view people wanting to see my work as them not trusting me or Mm -hmm. not viewing me as credible, that even when people do view you as credible and do see you as trustworthy, them wanting to understand your thought process and see your work. And and another part of that that I think is really critical is when we share our thought process with people and how we work through a problem, there's actually a coaching element of like, okay, here is exactly how I approach thinking through this and the challenges and the value judgments I made along the way, and here's how I got to my answer. And so even if you disagree with my answer, you at least understand how I got there. Um, so I've been guilty of that for sure. Yeah, in the last I, year. I think what I have learned over the last year is even if you show your work at that point, it's kind of too late for yeah. me. Um, you know, cause there's just a lot that goes into it. And so it, you're saying if I come and say, I've got the answer, I'm also willing to show you how here, I got here's the answer. Five page, here's a yeah. five page kind of thing. If there isn't the familiarity and the trust and the credibility built. And the collaboration like, right, through the process. Yeah, and you're, you're asking a lot of people to process a lot of things and, and maybe their style of processing is different from yours and it's yep. it, it's just not there. And so I think one of the things I, I put for myself for goals for this year was to have more kind of one-on-ones with other leaders. And I have been, been pretty slack in it, uh, but have started doing that because realizing when I get to that point, it's probably too late that the other people whom I'm going to team with, they need to know yeah. how I think and what kind of things I'm going to be bringing to the table before we get to that kind of heated moment, yeah. right? The big presentation. Making, uh, there should never be a huge unveiling where it's like, wow, how did Caleb come up with that? You know, right. regardless and, of what the quality of thought. And that is a reality. Being remote and also being, being a team that doesn't have... A, a, the relational connects a lot of, you know, the other kind of um, leadership team has that go back years. So just realizing I, I need to be attentive to to building that that base where people feel comfortable and say, oh, I know what Caleb's going to do. Yeah, He's going to bring in a bunch of facts and we're going to go over those and I'm supposed to 
poke on him and show him the holes in his logic. And that's not going to bother him for people to, yeah. And so just practicing, I think is, you know, practicing in less high stakes situations, right? Let's practice this once every couple of weeks, just talking through things. So our organization, the majority of it's in person, the technology team is remote from Tennessee. What are a couple of things you've learned about leading a remote team well? Because your team is actually in person in Tennessee, right? But you're more remote from the the, uh, the majority of the the company. So, what have you learned about how to do that well? It's weird to say that the pandemic really gave us a big upgrade on kind of our interface with the company, just because mm-hmm. we got better gear and better everybody got on Zoom, and um, so that was actually that was a really big milestone for us because it was like prior to 2020. You might be able to hear the company meetings. You might not, depending on the day or the room or you know whose computer it was. Mm-hmm. Um, but once we got the tools in place, I, th- I think the, the thing that I encourage my team to do is just to, to reach out to people. As much as, you know, a lot of times when people reach out to me on Slack, I will just respond with the Zoom link. You know, just let's just mm. have an interaction. Just by default, yeah. I wanna make this face-to-face and verbal if I can. Right, because prior to 2020, you know, a lot of things happened on when somebody would want to talk to me, it would happen on the phone call. And it's just so much richer for me on Zoom. You know, we're kind of reading each other's body cues and everything. Um, So I I think just encouraging people to be involved um, to, you know, Simple Modern has been very generous with funds in terms of us traveling here as much as we can Mm -hmm. do it, basically. Uh, and, And I think that makes... A big difference um, whenever my folks from my team come, I always feel like oh, that was really great. Uh, and you realize there is a barrier because if you sit at a table out there, you know, 10 people will stop by and ask you about things. Yeah. And it and wouldn't have come up if you had been right. in Tennessee. And, and all day long, I can say, hey, ask me this question on Slack. Yeah. But there really is a barrier to like, am I Yeah. So even them? for us, it's yeah. still really a hybrid model, even though you're not in office all that frequently, they're still we're still prioritizing there being some in person, in real right. life connection. Yeah. And I think that's that's important. Um, it just it creates a little bit of that connection in a lot cheaper way versus, you know, like I I could meet with everybody in the company over Zoom, but it's like I'm not gonna do that. Yeah. You know? I've done it before during the pandemic. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. Uh, I remember that week. It's a two. lot. Yeah. It's a lot to do that in a in a week. Um how do you feel like you've grown as a leader over the last couple of years, Caleb? A lot of reflection on my communication and how I approach conversations with people. You know, I, I've told you this, like it, we were going through some, some conflicts and, and you were talking to us about being, um, talking to my team about, um, you know, being winsome and, Mm-hmm. you know, just how we approach conversations and, and being flexible. And, you know, and I've been honest with you, like, I thought, well, I'm a really flexible guy. You know, right. like, I, right. I feel like I'm always making compromises. Um, but just seeing the effects that my communication styles mm-hmm. have on people and how sometimes it, it introduces stress uh, and, and it doesn't really, you know, no matter how much I demand that we have a, an objective conversation that is right. just the facts. Unemotional. It, right. That it doesn't solve the problems. And so trying to focus more on how do I, oh, I think that's a blind spot for me where I have a way of communicating and I think it's really flexible, but it actually doesn't work for a lot of people. Yeah. And we like to think, we like to tell ourselves the story that it's a real meritocracy of ideas and the best ideas win. And it's like, that's not how the world works. The world works through persuasion and how you make people feel and selling people on ideas, persuading them into points of view. Um, And when you, you know, you can try the Spock approach. It just doesn't really work very well in in real life. And I've seen, uh, I I think I've seen that from you as well, how you've started to realize like, okay, I've got all these giftings in terms of how I can think through things. And now you're just like expanding the tool belt of how you communicate with people. And when those two things stack on top of each other, that's pretty powerful. Yeah, I, I think you challenging Tim and I, one of my team members around this, just pretty repeatedly kind of led us to this 
moment of reflection, like, oh, we do have this kind of belief that that's kind of like manipulation, right? Yeah. If I have to do more than present you, if it's anything other than the facts and just the facts, then somehow that somehow I'm it's trying bad to manipulate or manipulative, you. yeah. And so we had to, you know, kind of have our conversations, coaching conversations, and and look through that and think through. No, if if I have something that I think is helpful to the company or to a particular team and I need to change the way that I present it so that eventually they can see that, yeah. that, that that's part of the service. It's it, part of leadership. Right. It's, it's not me trying to sell or trying to mm-hmm. get somebody to do what I want to do, but it, it is part of the service. So I, I think that was a pretty profound thing. Like I had to look at myself and think, I do kind of think, Ooh, I don't want to, I don't want to manipulate people, but it's yeah. like, oh no, I'm, I'm not manipulating people. I am. You're persuading. I'm considering, right? I'm considering how do you, how, what's the way that's helpful for you to hear this? Yeah. Right? And it's, it's a great, it's a great point that the difference between manipulation and persuasion, I think is manipulation is selfishly motivated mm-hmm. and often is done by obscuring facts you know, like I'm going to shade the truth in order to get you to do something I want you to do because I benefit. Whereas persuasion is just, I'm going to use the truth and every emotional and, you know, persuasional tactic that I have because I really think this is what's best for the mm-hmm. team and for all of us. So Caleb, uh, last question, you, you've been with the company for several years. What are one or two of your favorite memories from your time at Simple Modern? Being remote, um, the times, especially early on when we could get the whole company together, mm-hmm. was always really meaningful. And so I think the probably the last time when it was the whole company, or almost the whole company, it was in 2019. We went out to the lake house and yeah. just spent uh, the weekend. It was the first time I met your wife, Amy, right, I think. Right, And I'd say the moments when, when Amy has gotten to come and yeah. connect with people have been some of my favorite because she's obviously so much of my life and, and to kind of connect those, um, relationships that, you know, otherwise don't get to those are some of my, those early sweet times. Um, and I do just love, you know, as I was thinking about this, I love a good conversation and, um, you know, you and I have practiced over the past year, 18 months, having a lot of conversations and, you know, pretty recently we had one, um, I think we were just, talking about pricing and personalization yeah, and, and where we, we were all over up and down both sides of the issue. And, um, but, but it came to a place, there was a moment of realization of like where we were, we were, it seemed like we were butting heads, but I, I remember you brought a particular perspective and it was like, Tim and I were on the call and it was like, Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. And it was like, yes, this was a, it, it's, it's nice to have a successful one, yeah. you know, sometimes absolutely. where it's like, we, we all brought things to this conversation and we all came to a place where we're like, we understood each other. Yeah. Um, and so that, that was a pretty recent one, but absolutely. It was fun. Well, and I, I think, you know, our best memories, one of the qualities they almost always have is that they were costly in some way, mm-hmm. you know, like be, they're, they were rare or there was a lot of hard work involved or it's the accumulation of uh, a lot of hours or something like those tend to be a, a bunch of the memories that stand out to me. So, uh, I would agree, uh, with, with both the ones you shared. Well, thanks for sharing your perspective. I hope that everyone listening to this got as much out of it as I did. Thanks for joining us on this episode of scaling for good. Yeah.